through the hallways of academia and on the face of the moon the footprints of conquest haven't left us any room to say Greetings and welcome to the 17th edition podcast of Women's Liberation Radio News. The team at WLRN produces a monthly radio broadcast to break the sound barrier women are blocked by under the status quo rule of men. This blocking of women's discourse we see in all sectors of society, be they conservative, liberal, mainstream, progressive, or radical. The thread that runs through all of American politics, except for separatist feminism, is male dominance and entitlement in all spheres. This is Julia Beck. I'm a lesbian radical feminist interested in getting to the root of things. Today's podcast is about women's health and wellness practices as they have developed under patriarchy and also outside of patriarchy. We will hear from Linda Conroy, founder of the Midwest Women's Herbal Conference, about alternatives to conventional and patriarchal medicine and how women can learn to take charge of their health. WLRN's Amanda interviews Jenna Hoke, natural birth advocate and founder of the Canamama Clinic in Colorado. And WLRN's sound goddess engineer, Jenna DeCorto, provides her commentary on the attack on women's health and wellness by the same forces that fuel the oil and gas industry in our society. But first, here are the WLRN headlines for this Thursday, September 7th, 2017, as prepared and read by yours truly. Wolf's complaint in the case of the Women's Liberation Front versus the United States, a landmark case that argued for the right of girls and women to bodily privacy, was dismissed without objection from Wolf because the current U.S. administration withdrew the Obama administration's redefinition of sex to mean gender identity for Title IX purposes. The Supreme Court granted certiorari in the Gloucester v. GG case, where a girl who identifies as a trans boy is demanding access to the boys' restroom, and several boys have complained that her use of the boys' restroom violates their right to privacy. Wolf filed a front-of-the-court brief in favor of granting cert in that case, as well as an amicus brief on the merits filed jointly with the Family Policy Alliance. However, after the current administration withdrew the previous administration's redefinition of sex to mean gender identity, the Supreme Court sent the case back to the Fourth Circuit for additional argument. Oral arguments in that case are scheduled for September 12, 2017. Wolf's friend of the court briefs are part of the formal court record and are available for consideration by the Fourth Circuit. The Women's Liberation Front is the only women's organization involved in the ongoing legal battles regarding gender identity that is specifically standing up for the rights of women and girls. To donate to the legal fund for these historic landmark cases, visit womensliberationfront.nationbuilder.com. Adaronke Apata, Nigerian lesbian and women's rights activist, won asylum in August after a 13-year battle with Home Office, the UK's Department of Immigration. Apata fled Nigeria in 2004 after being accused of witchcraft and sentenced to death. 
In the UK, she was frequently detained and spent an entire year at Jarl's Wood, an abusive facility she calls, quote, a concentration camp, end quote. Home Office rejected her first asylum request in 2012 because they accused her of lying about her sexuality. Apata hopes that in the future, Home Office will, quote, treat everyone with the decency and respect they deserve, end quote. Lesbians and gay men in St. Petersburg, Russia, celebrated the city's eighth gay pride under the close watch of riot police in a so-called free speech zone. This small victory follows the devastating news earlier this year of Chechnya's gay purge, during which homosexuals have been blackmailed, tortured, and killed. A recent Stonewall report claimed 45% of transgender children attempt suicide, but the study that this statistic is based on is seriously flawed. While the actual count of female-to-male respondents is unknown, an in-depth analysis of the study at transgendertrend.com estimates 70% of trans-identified respondents were female, with female children comprising over one-third of the study's male category. Stonewall's erroneous reporting makes invisible the actual number of suicide attempts of young lesbians who are now identifying out of womanhood. On August 5th, lesbians at the Vancouver Dyke March were harassed and stalked for holding signs of female anatomy. Dyke marches all around the world that used to be for lesbian women to march with pride safely in the streets have taken a turn in recent history towards abusive demonstrations of lesbian hatred. So-called dyke marches in Chicago, Boston, New York, and even Winnipeg, Manitoba are no longer marches for dykes. The degradation of dykes by the Vancouver Dyke March comes as no surprise since the announcement of their partnership with the sex trade earlier last month. Over the past 15 years, the sex trade lobby in New Zealand has become so powerful that it's monopolizing the political conversation on prostitution. In 2003, the New Zealand sex trade was fully decriminalized, and the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective, which used to be a small grassroots charity, is now a government-funded lobby. This lobby actively downplays the coercive nature of global rape culture and the violence women face in the sex trade. A spokesperson for the lobby once referred to sex trafficking as a working holiday and calls post-traumatic stress disorder sex worker burnout. Artist and gender-critical feminist Renee Gerlich argues that the industry is inherently exploitative. It allows men to, quote, circumvent consent and purchase access to women's bodies for sexual use. Gerlich is holding an art show in Wellington from September 25th to October 1st called Too Much Truth, Women's Global Resistance to Sexploitation, and will feature artwork by 35 survivors, artists, abolitionists, and organizations from around the world, including WLRN. Gerlich urges people to take the wool from their eyes and hopes to shift the conversation locally to make it more critical and survivor-focused. The World Health Organization removed several pages of information on sex and gender from their website and replaced them with a very confusing paragraph, which implies that a person's identity is as material as their body, without defining what an identity actually is. The terms transgender and intersex are also conflated when, in reality, People with intersex conditions are born with biological differences. Intersex is a material reality, not a gender identity.
Lebanon's parliament repealed Article 522, a marry the rapist clause that legally suspended the criminal prosecution of rapists if they married their victims. Tunisia, Morocco, Egypt, and Jordan have also repealed similar clauses. Although the repeal of Article 522 is a success for Lebanese women and girls, child marriage and marital rape are still legal. The Texas House of Representatives passed House Bill 214 in July, and a similar bill is currently before the state Senate. If this bill passes, then abortions would no longer be covered by health insurance plans that are part of the Texas Obamacare exchange. This means women will have to purchase private abortion insurance in order to have an abortion, even in cases of incest or rape. Nepal's government passed a new law decriminalizing chopardy, the practice of isolating women during their periods, but women's activist Pima Laki says the law is not enough to end the menstrual taboo. Nepalese women will now have to file complaints against their own family. What women need, says Laki, is strategic interventions aimed at the root causes of patriarchal society. On the night of August 11th, a group of white supremacists marched on the University of Virginia, the next day, hundreds of armed white men gathered at a Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. Counter-protesters physically blocked the Nazis from reaching a Confederate statue where their rally was planned to take place. Fights broke out every few minutes, and the violence quickly escalated. Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe declared a state of emergency at 11.28 a.m. He estimated that 80% of the people at the rally had semi-automatic weapons, saying the militiamen in attendance, quote, had better equipment than the state police, end quote. Around 2 o'clock, a man named James Fields drove his car into the crowd, killing Virginia native Heather Heyer and injuring 19 other people. Like every other male terrorist, Fields has a history of enacting violence against women. World leaders immediately condemned the rally and attack. German Chancellor Angela Merkel called the violence, quote, disgusting. Germany is one of 10 countries in which Nazi symbolism has been illegal since the end of World War II. President Donald Trump sympathized with the Nazis, comparing the alt-right to a so-called alt-left, saying, quote, I think there is blame on both sides, end quote. Two days after that rally, protesters in North Carolina toppled one of the state's 100 Confederate statues. Takia Thompson, the woman who climbed the statue, declared all statues like it must be removed. Quote, that statue glorifies the conditions that oppressed people live in, and it had to go, end quote. Women all over the world are taking a stand against male violence. On the first weekend of August, Baltimore native Erica Bridgeford organized the city's first ceasefire event, a 72-hour call that, quote, nobody kill anybody. Bridgeford and fellow organizers spent three months canvassing the city, challenging male egos to lay down their arms. Bridgeford calls it a success and is now organizing a new movement called Ceasefire 365. Over 60 women are filing a class action lawsuit against Google after one of its male engineers published a 10-page manifesto explaining why women don't belong in tech. In April 2017, the Office of Federal Contractor Compliance Programs testified against Google in court, saying, quote, discrimination against women in Google is quite extreme, end quote. On Poland's Armed Forces Day, women organized a sit-in protest in central Warsaw 
to block a far-right rally of Nazis from marching through town. Protesters held photos of Heather Heyer and signs that read, quote, get fascists off the streets. Each time the police forcibly removed one protester, a new woman sat to take her place. American women are organizing left-leaning groups in some of the reddest parts of the country. Kelly Sullivan of South Dakota joined Leaders Engaged and Determined, or LEAD, to voice her opposition to the current administration. Mandy Fowler, founder of the Kudzu Coalition of West Alabama, says her group is named after the invasive plant species because, quote, We grow fast, and we connect, and we flourish. We are hard to get rid of. Plastic bag drifting through the wind, wanting to start again. Do you ever feel feel so paper thin, like a house of cards, one blow from caving in? Do you ever feel already buried deep, six feet under screens, but no one seems to hear a thing? Do you know that there's still a chance for you? 'Cause there's a spark in you, you just gotta ignite the light and let it shine. Just on the night, like the fourth of July. 'Cause baby, you're a firework. Come on, show 'em why you work. Make 'em go up, up, up as you should. That was Firework by Katy Perry. Linda Conroy is an herbalist and healer who puts together and organizes the Midwest Women's Herbal Conference every year in Wisconsin. She spoke recently with WLRN's Thistle Patterson about the differences between conventional patriarchal models of medicine and the wise woman way, a feminist model of medicine that has the womb at the center of its approach. Here is a portion of that interview. She starts out by answering the question, what is the difference between conventional medicine and the wise woman way? And really, not only conventional medicine, but even what we call alternative medicine, both scientific tradition, conventional medicine that we think of, that most of us go to see our MD, and that 
track of medicine or even natural medicine or alternative medicine is still really focused on more of a disease-based focus and model. And the wise woman tradition is focused on strengths, and which is the whole feminist tradition. <laughs> I mean, our roots are based on strength and what we do well and the core of who we are and building health, not um, taking us down and living in a state of disease focus, which is really pathological <laughs> in so many ways. So focusing on nourishment and nurturing and building health and basically trusting that when something's not right, we'll just know. It's a very intuitive approach. It's um, relational in nature. So the, the interest is on relationship to the plants. Um, herbal medicine in the wise woman tradition focuses on that connection and that relationship. It's very different than um, when you go into a health food store and you're looking at a lot of supplements, which has no relationship. So when I teach workshops and classes, for example, at a natural health food store, a natural, you know, the co-op here in Madison and other places where they actually have a grocery section, I'll often take the students out into the produce section and say, this is the herb section. <laughs> and there's dandelion there and burdock and, you know, all of these plants, which are, that's where the medicine comes from. And then, of course, I lead lots of herb walks, too, even through the co-ops. And we go outside and look at the um, plants. So both conventional medicine and alternative medicine often are focused on things that aren't people's medicine. It's outside of the um, people's ability to access it. And traditional medicine around the world is about relationship. It's about the plants. It's about that direct connection. Yeah. And what is it about the wise woman way that is specifically about women and specifically mm -hmm. feminist and about female bodies? Because mm -hmm. in conventional medicine, you could say that the default body that they're examining is the male body and that the female body just doesn't really get the focus that the male body gets. Can you well, talk a little bit about that? And one thing I can say, it's not default, it's on purpose. I mean, all of the research and studies, even on breast cancer, originally were all done on men because they're more predictable. So it's not a default. It's very intentional. I think I'm sure you know this, and you know most of us do, that the patriarch is much more intentional than we'd like to think. And so that is intentional because it's easier to study something that's more consistent. You know, women have hormones. We fluctuate. We're changeable which is the beauty of us, right? And the wise woman tradition honors that and celebrates that. Um, I love in Susan Weed's book, Healing Wise, she says the um, vision of health is unimaginable transformations. You can't really measure that, right? So there's um, acknowledgement of that transformational aspect of health. You don't come in and you're not a static um, being and not that anyone's a static being, but men are more predictable. They don't have the hormone fluctuations that we do. They don't have the same kind of experience. They don't give birth. I mean, the center of the wise woman tradition is the womb. <laughs> it's focused on that transformational experience of birth, of even menopause. I mean, menopause is an incredible transformational experience that, you know, men don't have. 
And so the wise woman tradition honors and celebrates those things and sees them as healthful, not disease states. And back to, you know, earlier talking about the differences and the approaches, it's a mindset is the difference. The difference of thinking like menopause is a great example. And I have a lot of personal experience in recent years going through menopause. And menopause is a transformational experience and it's not a disease state. Whereas conventional medicine sees symptoms and disease with menopause the wise woman tradition sees a transformation and a, an evolving of your new stage of life. So it honors and looks at stages of life. It doesn't look at problems. And it, it's not, I mean, not that there are problems, of course there are, but it's not the focus, you know. And a lot of, and actually I'll just tell you this quick story because it really hits, hit home for me. And I didn't put it together for a long time, but when I was in graduate school in a women's studies course, one of my instructors said, there's no such thing as PMS. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, you're kidding. Like, I'm feeling it. Like, I get PMS before I start menstruating. I have, you know, cramps and whatever else. And years later, as I started studying women's health and herbalism, what I realized what she was saying is that a lot of it is culturally induced. Because when we're going through, um, you know, our, we're, when we're having our menstrual cycle, we're supposed to rest and take time out. And we have a different sensibility about us. And we're being forced to go to work and do things rather than pay attention to what I think there's a very psychic aspect to, to menstruating. And we don't get to sit in that. We're forced to function in a way that isn't natural. And so the PMS, I think, is more about that tension between culture and what our intuitive selves and our bodies want to be doing, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, so... The wise woman tradition celebrates that, encourages that, encourages us even to find creative ways to express that. Zijana Budapest's book, Goddess in the Office, um, and she has a whole bunch of books, you know, Goddess in the Bedroom, <laughs> but Goddess in the Office, she talks about women finding creative ways to let each other know when they're menstruating. So we can give each other little breaks or let somebody go home a little early and cover for them or just find creative ways to be able to honor those aspects of ourselves that are hidden in society. I mean, we hide things because we're not able to just express who we are. We can't just say, oh, I'm menstruating today, so I'm leaving early. You know? right. <laughs> I mean, maybe there's a few places where that could happen, but it's pretty rare. But it's really, you know, something that would, would free women up a lot and they wouldn't have as much um, difficulty with um, our bodily functions. Of course, there's many other things that affect it, but that's just one piece. Can you talk about how women can take charge of their health in this patriarchal society that emphasizes dieting and that our bodies are bad somehow? Mm -hmm. How can women reclaim our health and be in charge of our bodies? Mm -hmm. Well, one big thing is education, getting as much information as we can about what the landscape looks like. Um, what I find is a lot of times people get, like say someone has a health problem and all of a sudden they're faced with being, you know, infiltrated into the medical system. 
and they they're kind of sh- it's kind of shocking the way that people get treated and especially women get treated in the medical system so educating yourself ahead of time knowing what this landscape looks like looking at how you're going to choose providers to support you knowing your own body really really well you know i love susan weed in her breast health breast cancer book she talks about doing self breast massage instead of exams So it takes that looking for a problem and puts it into a more positive light. So you do self-breast massage, and if something's different one month, you'll notice, right? And not only do you do the massage, but you're using um, herbal-infused oils to do it. So you're um, basically nurturing and nourishing yourself and getting to know our bodies really, really well. So we know, and when we're talking to someone, like the scientific tradition relies on tests to tell them what's wrong, you know, and technology to tell them what's wrong. And they ignore the person's story. And what happens is these, our medical system doesn't train people to do that. It doesn't allow time for that. I mean, the, the a number of patients that doctors see were just being, it's like a, a treadmill base, you know, a, an assembly line basically we're put on. So insisting that your story be heard, insisting that you be seen, not settling for a first opinion ever if you have a, have a health problem, you know, making sure you get as much input as possible, unless it's an emergency, of course, <laughs> you know, you have to get something done to do right away. But most things we deal with, we have time, we can do our research, we can get information, we can be clear, seek out other women who've been through the experience and, you know, and men, I mean, there's there's certainly many feminist men out there, right, that can share information and get information and be as educated as we can. Our system is really, really difficult. And I'm talking about the alternative system as well. You start looking at practitioners. I work with a lot of people who have Lyme disease. We live in the mecca of one of the hotbed areas of for Lyme's disease. And a lot of alternative practitioners are sending people down, you know, these crazy roads, trying to help them, but not keeping it simple enough for for it to be doable. And it's very overwhelming for people. So I think, too, one of the things I'm seeing a need for is for people to have someone to just to throw ideas around. You know, as much as I help people in my consultation practice with the herbal aspect and nutrition, I find myself also cheering them on, helping them get resources and information and digging around and doing some of the work I did as a social worker (laughs) because the resources aren't on the surface. They're they're sometimes very difficult to find, you know, like even support groups, counseling, you know, and counseling from a perspective that's strength-based, you know, because even that modality is very pathological based. You know, I encourage women to work in groups rather than individual counseling. I think it's more empowering. I think it's somewhat disempowering to be meeting with a therapist who's the powerful one and well, and you're the sick one and you're sitting there. So just, I guess the big thing is looking at what you're seeking and seeing if, if it has a strength-based focus and seeking that out as much as possible or creating it. I mean, that is a big piece of the work that I do in my apprenticeships is helping women feel confident enough to create their own healthcare team if they need it. So speak out, speak over, speak under, speak through the noise. 
Next up, we'll hear excerpts from an interview WLRN's Amanda did with Jenna Hoke of the Canna Mama Clinic in Colorado, a women's pro-marijuana organization. Amanda talked with Ms. Hoke about her organization and her experiences with the Colorado Doula Project, a group that kicked Jenna out of their birthing training because she disagreed with language that nullified the distinctions between male and female bodies, something key to the nature of birthing practice. Here is a portion of that interview. You created and run the Canamama Clinic. For those who haven't looked into it, can you explain what the clinic does, its mission, and what inspired you to create it? Our mission statement is we pledge to help cannabis consumers step out of the canna closet with advocacy services, entertainment, and community support in an effort to ensure the right to bodily autonomy for all. Bodily autonomy, it's a huge one for me. And it ties in like most of my beliefs, you know, whether it's rape culture or circumcision or abortion or the right to consume cannabis while pregnant and breastfeeding. I was harassed by social workers after I gave birth to my daughter because I consumed cannabis through my whole pregnancy. I almost lost my son and I have a major history of miscarriage. So anything that I feel necessary to maintain a healthy pregnancy, I'm going to do. And they wanted me on all kinds of medications and I was like, hell no, because the catchphrase or the tagline of my company is nurturing natural. I'm very about that hippie life. (laughs) So initially it was all about cannabis and motherhood, but I realized it was much more than that because I had a platform and I have since used that platform to promote female empowerment as I see it anyway. Not everybody agrees with me, but this is why we call ourselves a unique cannabis community. I basically destroyed my cannabis branding by adding in feminism. And I did that knowingly and willingly. It's too important to me. You know, I wanted to be different. There's a hundred other mom cannabis clubs that have sprung up after mine, after my article. And they're all the same, you know. They body shame their members and they slut shame their members and they promote rape culture. I mean, some of the stuff I see is just disgusting. And I could not, with a honest heart, sit by and allow that in my community so so we are seeing this push in all senses of the word to use non-sexed language language that doesn't differentiate between any type of body male female so what do you think is the danger in trying to redefine language and specifically what does that entail for women you know why was that that trans woman so upset about the use of female terms and the acknowledgement that abortion is a woman's issue, right? We couldn't even frame it as such because, oh no, you might hurt the trans man. So there, well, there wasn't a trans man there. So this is why I'm still confused on who had the issue with my presence. Mm-hmm. There was a trans woman there. So you mean the person that cannot get pregnant? cannot ever have an abortion, will not ever need an abortion, is so upset at my presence there that I have to leave. I've had an abortion. 
I funded abortions for people. I still fund abortion for people. And my community is one of the most well-known support systems for abortions in like Facebook community that I know of. I don't know anybody else that's like, you need an abortion, you better go and join this community because they're gonna help you out. So I still am shocked by that. How do you put that over the needs of thousands of women? Like that's why I said, I was like, it's not just about me. I touch exponentially. I teach people who then teach people who then teach people. That's what it's about. When you talk about really empowering women, it's a grassroots movement. I believe it's more important that we talk to each other. You know what I mean? That we have the ability to speak to each other in these small groups and spread our knowledge from woman to woman to woman. You know, like the institutions, they can change us so much, but as long as we keep talking to each other, we're going to be able to beat them. You have no idea the number of doulas that reach out to me. The number of La Leche leaders that are being forced to use this chest-feeding terminology and allow men into their once women-only meetings. The book is called The Womanly Art of Breastfeeding. Two weeks ago, La Leche League announced these chest feeding badges. If you look into it, La Leche League gives all kinds of badges, you know, the one month mark, the one year mark, the pumping for six months mark. I mean, amazing. I breastfed twins. I breastfed my sister's baby, all kinds of badges. And they introduced chest feeding badges now. All of the words are replaced, all of the things the same, but now for chest feeding, because apparently breastfeeding was offensive. This is La Leche League. The organization for women and breastfeeding have now caved to the gender bullshit. So you suffered from hyperemesis gravidarum, which is, as I understand it, really debilitating nausea. Am I correct? <laughs> I always call it morning sickness to the nth degree. Yeah. You know, it's unbearable. I had to drop out of school for a while. Now with my daughter, I didn't really allow myself to get bad. With my son, I was very young and impressionable and believed, you know, everything. Everything that you're supposed to do when you're pregnant, I did. Don't eat lunch meat. Don't eat sushi. And cannabis was one of them. I consumed cannabis since I was like 13 years old. And as soon as I got pregnant with my son, I was like, can't smoke cannabis. It's a drug, right? Mm -hmm. And I got really, really, really sick hospitalized multiple times to the point where I had an ER doctor tell me if I didn't get my shit under control, there was a good likelihood I would lose this pregnancy. This one on top of like how many I had already lost. That's when I decided to go home and consume cannabis. <laughs> I don't even remember the thought process. I just went home and was like, nothing else is working. I've done the Zofran. I've done the Finergen. I've been hospitalized. I was in a really, really bad relationship and I was super, super stressed out as well. And I just went home and I consumed. And for the first time in like nine weeks, I had a life again. I could peel myself up off the couch. I started school back up. I stopped vomiting constantly. Like I was constantly vomiting, could not eat, could not keep anything down. That stopped. I remember that's when I started getting massive cravings for these huge burritos at CU Denver's school. They still sell them, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Those burritos and PF Changs and then Dairy Queen. Oh, my God. I got real big real fast. <laughs> all thanks to this. Once I started feeling good again and things calmed down, I quit smoking cannabis around seven or eight months pregnant with my son. But I don't even recommend that anymore because now I realize it was 
not necessary. But yeah, I was really, really, really sick with my son. And that's what influenced me to give cannabis a try in hopes of saving his life. And I do credit with saving his life. There's no way I can prove that clearly, you know, but me in my heart of hearts, I know that how I felt before and how I felt after was complete night and day change. And you were also a victim of this stigma that's associated with cannabis use with pregnant women and breastfeeding women. And I know women have reached out to you telling you how they've had their children taken away, they've been visited. Can you just quickly describe what are some of the problems that can be caused uh, due to the stigma of cannabis use? You know, I can get so deep on this because I really think it all stems back. There's two things. You know, medicine is so patriarchal anyway, and the whole birthing process has become dominated by men and everything that they want you to do, laying on your back. You know, men have been dominating this field for so long, taking away midwifery and even going back to the Colorado Doula Project, taking away our language. We're really looking at a change in the way we look at giving birth, you know, and I'm part of that movement too. Both of my children, I did not use any medication. This was part of the funny thing when I had social workers in my room after my daughter. I was like, you know, the only medication they gave me was to save my life, right? I was like, I'm not taking your Vicodin. I've got stitches from here to here, and I'm still not taking your stuff. I want to go home and really medicate, you know, and that was something that they had to kind of look at. That's the first problem is we want to take it back. We want to be able to have our own medication and our own choices. And like, if women are able to be giving all these drugs that have terrible side effects, why can't we make control of our own choices, right? You can choose to take the Vicodin, you can choose to take the whatever, but you can't choose to take the cannabis. It's silly. So that's the first problem, you know, taking away women's right to bodily autonomy. The second one is taking away the birth experience. It's scary whenever you have someone coming into your hospital room, putting a pee cup in your face right after you've given birth and saying, here, pee in this, you know you're hot and you know it's going to open investigation. In my state, it's a little bit different. If the woman is hot, but the baby's not, they usually don't open a full investigation, but Mm -hmm. that's rare. A lot of times if the woman is hot, the baby is hot. Sometimes if the woman is clean, the baby's still hot. We don't really understand it. There's no medical science to tell us why does this happen. The placenta is a fascinating thing. You know, it filters out some stuff. Some people filter out more than others. We don't know. We don't have any clue why. But it's dangerous. The scariest, the most dangerous thing about cannabis consumption is the government. It's not that you're going to OD You're not going to make your children grow a third eye right here. You're not going to die. You're not going to overdose. You'd have to smoke like a pound in like 30 minutes to OD. I was just part of a research study on stone driving. It was awesome. It was so cool. They were like, here, get as high as you can in a short amount of time. And I was like, okay, that'll be fun. But we showed up like really, really sober and then had to get really, really stoned. And you know what? I was still past the sobriety tests. But yeah, that's the most dangerous thing is the government, right? And so why take away that moment from women when they first give birth? It should have been a happy occasion, celebrating with my family. I hear from women all the time that that is taken away from them. And instead, fear is instilled in them. 
and propagated to all this reefer madness. They give these old fact sheets and talk about you're going to get your baby stoned whenever you breastfeed. There's a joke in our community. We wish the breast milk would make our kids chill out sometimes, right? <laughs> moms are always like pulling their hair out. My kids are so crazy. You know, mm. if anybody could say, hey, my breast milk chills my kid out, it would be us. But <laughs> it doesn't. We've got crazy kids too. <laughs> We've got the kids with the sleeping issues. And, you know, it's like we're normal moms. And so that stigma is also dangerous. You know, women having to hide. I hate that. I hate having to hide. So I think that's really it. You know, the obvious answer is getting your kids taken away. That's the worst case scenario. It doesn't happen in my state very much. Usually they have to have like another reason. You know, I have four or five cannabis social work cases because people call me all the time. They're not taking my kids away. But in other states, I would be scared. It's really scary. Desiree with her song, You Gotta Be. Next up, WLRN's in-house sound master, Jenna, presents her commentary on women's health and wellness. 
You are listening to WLRN. Brought to you by the totally excellent radical feminists at Women's, Women's Liberation, Liberation Radio, Radio, Radio News. News. Women are taught from the beginning of our lives to be divorced from ourselves bodily and psychologically. This dissociation isn't simply a product of misogyny. It's got practical application for patriarchal society. Like the fossil fuel industry will claim widespread use of renewable energy isn't feasible at the moment while trying to figure out how to be the middleman between consumers and the sun and the wind, Western healthcare would have you believe female intuition is hypochondria and holistic treatments are unreliable and niche. Women's power over ourselves and our health is discouraged because it lacks a gluttonous profit center. We have the option to convert ourselves to more integrated health and wellness practices, but as with anything that requires you to overcome not only a lifetime of brainwashing, but also a system set up to make all the unnatural things as convenient as possible, it takes an alternative education and an effort for which the majority of women don't have time. Even coloring within the lines of conventional medicine is an uphill battle for women, convincing their doctors that the pain is real, the fainting is real, the migraines are real, the depression is real. It helps tremendously to have a community that can and will share information and practices, and that community may make it easier to connect with practitioners that take women's physicality and innate holistic nature into account, but that community must be sought, and the seeking only comes after an awakening. Capitalism is a driving force dividing us from ourselves and any feelings of empowerment. Women can seek holistic health care, but we will be paying out of pocket. Non-drug treatments are often considered experimental, regardless of whether or not they've been proven to work. Take acupuncture. This has to be one of the most mainstream non-drug treatments utilized in the West for many different things that patients testify works. All kinds of pain, nausea, IBS, headaches, depression, hypertension, RA, insomnia, fibromyalgia, infertility. There's a long list of conditions and symptoms for which acupuncture has been proven to be an effective treatment, and an even longer list for which it hasn't been proven as an effective treatment. Where's the funding for that research that will unequivocally affirm acupuncture's effectiveness? What of other non-medicinal practices, such as yoga or Reiki or chakra cleansing, or even something as unassuming as massage therapy? Western healthcare rolls its eyes at these things, and you can especially forget about insurance companies covering them as preventative measures. They say there's no science behind them, those aren't serious treatments. The hubris is unhinged. Sure, a percentage of people won't experience relief from so-called alternative treatments, but isn't that the case with any drug? That's why doctors have to, quote, find what works for you when figuring out the drug cocktail they're going to prescribe to relieve whatever it is you're suffering from. The research is what insurance companies say they're missing, but even if the research was there, they wouldn't affirm it. A treatment considered experimental is a treatment that hasn't been proven and thus is a monetary risk, and so they can't cover it, because clearly we're not paying enough for insurance companies to take a risk that may very well improve our health. But you know what they can cover? Opioids. A much better option for the pharmaceutical companies. Never mind that heroin addiction has exploded in the U.S. during the last few years, and the average user started out on prescription painkillers, whether it be their own script or their parents' or grandparents'. I'm sure plenty of women would scoff at the idea that feeling empowered has anything to do with our health. Practitioners of conventional medicine would say they just want to provide treatment that is reliable and that they know works. I completely understand that. I'm a child of Western medicine. There's no question that it has its place in our health care, so I'm not coming to you today, sisters, with a message to abandon conventional medicine completely. 
Even if you believe it is the best standard of care, you still must confront the patriarchal father-knows-best hierarchy of doctors and the sexism that has plagued women's health care in the West since they burned the witches. In this environment, empowerment is crucial in receiving even a minimum level of care, let alone in receiving the appropriate care. Men's biology has always been Western medicine's baseline, which is exactly why, for example, though men are more likely to experience heart attacks, women are more likely to die from them. The symptoms are different. Chest pain is not a telltale marker for a woman experiencing a heart attack. And guess what? Even if a woman is experiencing, quote, telltale symptoms, she's still more likely to be misdiagnosed and sent home from the ER mid-attack. A recent Marie Claire article describes how nearly exclusively male-tested research applied across the board to both sexes is acutely detrimental to women's health. Quote, aspirin does not prevent heart attacks in women under 65 like it does with men. The so-called gold standard test to detect artery blockage often doesn't reveal plaque in women, as it is more diffuse and harder to see. Similarly, because aortic aneurysms are more prevalent in men, screening guidelines only applied to them, even though aneurysms grow faster and are more likely to rupture in women. Twice as many women than men suffer from depression, yet fewer than 45% of studies on the condition use female animals. Similarly, 70% of people with chronic pain are women, yet 80% of pain studies are conducted on male mice or men. It's no surprise then that men are more likely to be prescribed painkillers. By contrast, women are more likely to be given sedatives, end quote. The director of the Office of Research on Women's Health at the National Institutes of Health, Dr. Janine Clayton, is quoted saying, There hasn't been a really scientific understanding of how important sex is, that this is a basic biological variable that affects us down to the cellular level, end quote. Likewise, Dr. Janice Werbinski, a gynecologist and executive director of the Sex and Gender Women's Health Collaborative, said, quote, Women are not just men with boobs and tubes. We can actually harm women by not researching them correctly and knowing the differences, end quote. Men's health is also prioritized over women's. How else could you explain the number of erectile dysfunction drugs on the market? How many studies are being conducted regarding the female libido? Or how about something that affects 90% of women, PMS? A quick search of active clinical trials through the website CenterWatch, a group that, quote, provides proprietary data and information analysis on clinical trials, end quote, populated 38 results for trials concerning erectile dysfunction. And that's with numerous treatments already existing for ED. The number of active clinical trials for PMS? Four. You'd be forgiven for thinking that, since PMS was first recognized in 1931, the reason there's such a dearth of clinical trials regarding the syndrome is because we've already found out what there is to know about PMS. The research is done. On the contrary, scientists still don't know what causes PMS, and researchers can't even definitively agree on what the symptoms are. As such, it is not uncommon for a woman with severe PMS symptoms to be misdiagnosed as having bipolar disorder. Cue misguided pharmaceutical attempts to relieve PMS symptoms that subsequently fail, and the woman still has no relief, and now also side effects from drugs she doesn't need. And if she is diagnosed properly with PMS, it's probably not encouraging for her to find out that nearly half of women suffering from PMS do not respond to current treatments. But hey, they got 14 different pharmaceutical ways to make a guy hard for four hours. And of course, no discussion of this issue can be had without addressing the timeless element of sexism behind the lack of research and treatment for PMS. Hysteria. Taken from the scientific social media site ResearchGate, quote, Kathleen Lustick, a psychologist from the University of Washington, has had grant reviews rejected on the grounds that PMS does not actually exist. Her reviewers suggested it was, quote, merely a product of our society or culture that has painted a natural process in a negative light and that, given its monthly predictability, leads to suffering through anticipation, end quote. 
Lustig said, quote, I suspect that this is a fancy way of saying it's really just in a woman's head, end quote. Remember those misdiagnosed heart attacks I mentioned earlier? Guess what many, not all, of the misdiagnoses are? Panic attack. Say it with me, sisters. Hysteria. Classic. Integrating our health practices will help us to hone the connection between our minds and bodies, thus making us more aware and receptive to feedback our bodies give us. The more connected we are to ourselves, the less susceptible we are to gaslighting, the more empowered we are to demand the health care we need. In the meantime, more research needs to be conducted with females accounted for, and the sex differences must be acknowledged, now more than ever. I am happy to present the following guest commentary from listener Rachel Blair into the mix for today's podcast. She offers practical tips for women to be assertive with healthcare professionals to get the care that we need. Thank you, Rachel. My name is Rachel Blair, and for the past four years or so, I've worked as a doula and a Lamaze teacher. And about a year and a half, almost two years ago now, I began training as a home birth midwife with the Midwives College of Utah. And in that time, I've gotten to hear about and witness a lot of different women's healthcare experiences. And one thing that I've noticed is that women have these conversations that sort of taper off, and they can't quite explain what the conclusion of their visit was or their their interaction with their care provider. And to me, that means that they're not getting the sort of communication that they really need. They're not getting that solid communication. So my rule of thumb is that if you can't explain what happened and what the plan is moving forward to, say, a 10-year-old child, then you're not getting the kind of communication that you really need to be getting. One thing that I remind the women that I work with is that if you're able to, and not everyone is, but if you're able to, remember that it is okay to fire your care provider. It is okay to go seek out health care with someone else, and it's okay to get a second opinion. But for a lot of women, that isn't an option, or maybe you do like your care provider, but you're just not getting the kind of communication that you really need to be getting, but you're not ready to switch. And in that case, I really encourage women to ask a lot of questions at their visits. Sometimes some care providers can be very long-winded and you can't quite get a word in. And I think when that happens, it's really okay to interrupt and say, wait, slow down. I have a question or I need to revisit this explanation. I didn't fully understand it. And then, of course, there are care providers that are really in a rush. And in that case, you really need to say, hold on, I didn't get the explanation that I needed. I, I just need a few more minutes of your time. When I work with women who aren't getting all of the answers that they need, I really encourage them to ask a lot of questions. And some of my favorite questions are, what would happen if I didn't do this test or this procedure or whatever it might be? What would happen if I went with an alternative? And what are those alternatives? What, what are all the options available to me? I also encourage women who are being pushed towards a procedure of some sort or a medication or a test that they're not feeling totally comfortable doing to say, I really need a minute to think this over, or I need to speak with a family member or a trusted friend before I make a decision. And on the flip side, there are women who are experiencing some sort of problem and they're letting their care providers know and they're not getting an answer about what they can do about it. I think a lot of the time, unfortunately, the reason that happens is that women go in for well women visits and they have a problem that they'd like to discuss and their care provider says something to the effect of, well, if the problem persists, come back in. And the reason that happens is because they'd like to bill for a separate visit and a problem visit, which is more expensive. And I urge you, if you're having a problem, listen to yourself. You know your body better than anyone else. And if you're having a problem, you can say, 
I really need to know, for example, what test options are available. And if there are options available to me, I really would like them done today. This is important to me. And unfortunately, some care providers really will give you a lot of pushback, but I encourage you to flip the dynamic that we often experience with doctors or, or with any care provider where we see they think that they're making the decisions. And I encourage you to remember that you are the decision maker and realistically, they should be working for you. And it's okay to push for what you need for your health. That concludes WLRN's 17th edition podcast for September 7th, 2017. Thanks for tuning in. The viewpoints expressed in today's podcast are done so in an effort to bring women an expanded perspective on women's health and wellness. It is not meant to replace the guidance of whomever you place your trust in for healthcare. This is Julia Beck signing off. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please send us an email to wlrnewscontact at gmail.com. WLRN is an all-volunteer-powered media collective. If you'd like to join our team, please visit our WordPress site and click on Volunteer for WLRN. We could use help with website development, interviewing, writing, editing, and transcripts. This is Amanda. Thank you for tuning in. And I'm Thistle Patterson. Thanks to your donations, we were able to get another shipment of WLRN t-shirts for our staff, volunteers, and listener sponsors. In addition, stay tuned for new shirts with the caption, If you call any woman a turf, you are a misogynist. Coming soon. If you'd like a WLRN t-shirt, visit our website at wlrnmedia.wordpress.com and click on our t-shirts tab. Thanks for tuning in to WLRN. This is Segmet Sheowl signing off for now. Next month's edition will focus on prostitution, pornography, and sex trafficking. We always release our handcrafted podcast the first Thursday of every month, so stay tuned for edition 18's October 5th release. Thanks for staying tuned to collectively produced feminist radio here at WLRN. This is Jenna DeQuarto. Until next time, stay strong. But how will we find our way out of this? What is the antidote for the patriarchal kiss? How will we find what needs to be shown? And then after that, where is home?